Welcome to Making Special Education Actually Work, an online publication presented in blog and podcast form by KPS for Parents. As an added benefit to our subscribers and visitors to our site, we're making podcast versions of our text-only blog articles so that you can get the information you need on the go by downloading and listening at your convenience. We also occasionally conduct discussions with guest speakers via our podcast and transcribe the audio into text for our followers who prefer to read the content on our blog. Where the use of visual aids, legal citations, and references to other websites are used to better illustrate our points and help you understand the information, these tools appear in the text-only portion of the blog post of which this podcast is a part. You will hear a distinctive sound during this podcast whenever reference is made to content that includes a link to another article, website, or download. Please refer back to the original blog article to access these resources. Today is March 31st, 2022. This post and podcast is titled Interview of George Bailey, President of Z-Pods. In this podcast, which was originally recorded on March 23rd, 2022, George and I discuss the impact of sleep disorders and related conditions that interfere with children's access to education and the research being done into his company's sleep solutions for children with autism, sensory integration disorders, insomnia, anxiety, and other disorders that can negatively impact their sleep quality. Hi, I'm George Bailey, and I'm the president of ZPOTS. We're a startup in St. Louis, and we are developing sensory-friendly beds for autistic children and others who have severe sleep problems that are caused by sensory issues. So uh, our goal is to help out as many of these kids as possible. We enjoy it, and uh, yeah. That's very cool. And I know that when I was emailing with you guys back and forth when we were coordinating all of this, you know, my first question was, what kind of peer-reviewed research do you have behind what you're doing? Are you doing any kind of studies? And I understand that not only are, because you were just telling me that you've got a regional center here in California that's already funded your product for one of its consumers, and they're not going to just jump on something unless there's evidence to back it up. But I know that you guys are also participating in some evidence, some studies and whatnot to, to collect the hard data that speaks to not just whether or not it's effective, but what makes it effective, how is it effective, and what is the science that underpins what it is that you're doing. And so I was hoping to get more information about that from you guys in terms of what's what's the research currently being done on the efficacy of your solution. It's such a good question. And, um, you know, I was just telling somebody earlier that one of the reasons why it took us a while to get around to really focusing on autism we were thinking about like you know where we should go is because when people would tell us you guys should really you know look at autism early on as we were trying to find an application for these sleep pods that we bring we were bringing in from China I balked at it I'm a father of five and I have two kids who are on the spectrum mm-hmm. and I thought like ah come on guys like you know parents of autistic children get sold all sorts of stuff oh I yeah for sure that business yeah I, I don't want to be in that business of playing on people's hopes and stuff like that. Um, and so it, it, I initially, when I approached it, I effectively said, okay, wait, I want to take this seriously because we're getting enough feedback that says we should do this. But I started talking to experts in the field and with parents of autistic children and interacting with autistic children with my own. And the feedback was resounding, like, please try this. You know, and I think that, so I'm going to answer your question in two parts. I think that there's intuitive evidence, and I think that there's going to be actual evidence. And the intuitive evidence is kind of based on all of our collective experience. Right, the anecdotal data. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's some heavy anecdotal evidence that seems to say, like, these children really value, and I say these as if, you know, there's this kind of, like, one type. Right, there's no monolith, but, yeah, kids with similar needs, yeah. Yeah, love sleeping in the closet, under the bed, and up against the wall. Like they, there's something that they like, and then there were the benefits that you know, we could see. And so there was something there. But And all of the things that kind of come together out of this bed, it was not built for kids with autism initially. Uh, it was just like a, an enclosure with some LED lights and some fans and a mirror. And, but all of those elements would combine together seem to form this really fantastic environment and uh, if you were to take any one of those things separately and study those out i think that you would find that 
some interesting things. Like, for example, when you close somebody, give them darkness. Well, darkness is heavily prescribed, you know, for good uh, sleep hygiene. Right. You know, get dark curtains or something like that. Except for that the enclosure itself provides almost like a sensory disorder. Right. And then LED lights, you know, again, heavily used in the sensory uh, or special needs community. Like right. Heavily used. And so all of these things come together. Now, where we're at with clinical trials is that um, we have been in touch with the folks at the Thompson Center for Autism and Neurodevelopmental Disorders. Mm-hmm. The, lead cl- the lead clinician for this project is going to be Dr. Christina McCray, who's published widely on autism and sleep. And that was a must. It needed to be, we needed somebody to do it who's going to ask the right questions. Right. I am trying my best to remove myself from the academic questions as much as possible to just kind of stand back and let them do their work. Right. Because it needs an honest assessment. That was my stance from the beginning. Is like, if we're going to go into this, here's how we're going to look at it. We're going to find out what's true. And what's true may not be as flattering as what we like, or maybe it'll be more so. Maybe it'll be better than, you know, maybe we're not being optimistic enough. I don't know. Right. But if we learn that X works, then we will continue to do X. Exactly. And if we, can say, if we learn that Y doesn't, then we will also chalk that up to a success and say we're going to stop doing Y. And if we learn that we should probably, there's an implication here that we should be trying Z then we're going to start pursuing that more thoughtfully. Right. Because I think that it, it requires that kind of mentality to really test this out. So well, yeah, I mean, any kind of that, solution that. requires that kind of mentality. That's just common sense, which, exactly. you know, we also call scientific method. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> <laughs> it's hard to do this as an entrepreneur. When you're an entrepreneur, you're hustling, you're, you're getting out there, you're, Constantly, you just gotta you know, sell, 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 and you gotta you know, pitch your brand, blah, blah, blah. But you gotta break out of that sometimes and just listen to what is being told to you. And, right. And sometimes, even sometimes that's hard. If you put your heart and your mind to it, and your, and your money as well into this, and it's very difficult. But at the same time, if you listen, then the, the rewards in terms of kind of like personal satisfaction that you are doing right by the people that you're trying to serve, pretty tremendous. Yeah, I, and I have um, to agree with that. Well, and, and what you're making me think of is that the psychology of sales and marketing is the exact yeah. same science as the psychology of good instruction. It's, it's all the same yes. thing. It's all the same yeah. thing. And so what you're doing is when you're doing... There's the, you know, the, the snake oil salesman kind of, I'm going to sell ice cubes to Eskimos and, and get people to part with their money for things they don't need. But then you also have consultative sales, which is responsible sales, where you're actually, you're not out there selling, you know, product features. You're out there selling solutions to people's problems. And you're, you're approaching it from the standpoint of what is your situation and do I have something that will help you? And if you do, then what you're really doing is you're not selling the product, you're selling the solution, and the product just happens to be the means to that end. And that's a more authentic thing, and you build relationships with people, and it requires you to listen to what their needs actually are. And this is what they've been, you know, all these sales classes they they have people take, this is the message. And this is what you're doing, but it's also exactly the same thing as when you're trying to identify an IEP solution for a kid. You've got to pay attention to what's going on with the kid as a unique individual and match the solution to the actual need. And so it, there really is no difference between consultative selling and IEP development when you're talking about matching solution to need. And I, I love that perspective. And, you know, it's interesting because I found myself in a few situations where I've actually explicitly told the parent, I don't think we're going to say you know, and, and I, I feel like I'm, it, it may feel like a kind of short-term victory to be able to like, hey, you know, we sold another bed. Right. Um, but it, it, it's a long-term hurt on the, the brand if you really are trying to establish yourself. It's like, we don't make scientific claims. You know, and, and no matter what, here's the crazy thing. It's like, no matter how many times I say that, we are not making any, you know, medical claims. Right. There will be parents who read onto what we're saying medical claims. Right. 
you know, like, because because that hope springs eternal, and they're looking for a solution, and this sleeplessness, sleeplessness of their child is causing them genuine distress. Right. So, you know, you, when, when a child's not sleeping, then the entire family is suffering. Exactly. And so you have to be really careful to kind of repeat that again and again. But at the same time, there's the kind of the other interest is that you also want to make sure that you get it out there because you rely on those early adopters who are like really like they'll take a risk. Right. I love those people. I am not an early adopter. Okay. I wasn't on Facebook until like 2011. <laughs> um, you know, it's like, and, you know, I'm, I'm the last kid on the block to, to find the new thing. And, um, but the early adopters, one of the things, whether they succeed or fail with your solution, uh, they give you information and it's very valuable and you have to respect them. Absolutely. You know, um, so that, that, but going back to your sales mentality thing, I think you're right. I don't think that it's always true. I've seen, uh, salespeople who use tricks of the trade that I personally find to be manipulative. Right. Um, but, but I'm the, I used to be foreign language instructor mm. for about nine years and it was really fun I, I loved that time in my life um, where I got to teach and there was always kind of the art of explanation yep you know where you had to learn to kind of and, and a lot of the explanation that I did uh, was kind of fun and maybe this is a little bit off topic but you know I, I taught Mandarin Chinese uh, first year mm-hmm. um and it was very fun. And the way that we would explain things, we were told by the teacher that we worked with, I was a teacher's assistant, but also taught courses, you're not going to use English to teach Chinese, you're going to use Chinese to teach Chinese. Right. So there was a lot of need to be able to be empathetic with my audience you know, when I was looking at them, pointing at myself saying, well, you know, which is the Chinese word for I or me, you know, um, that I have to see, are they really getting it? And I think that within art of sales you have to really listen to people yeah and the better you are at listening to people and their needs i think the better you're going to convey like you know that that you really care and that you're ready to solve a problem and not just like you know again sell snake oil right well and again i i relate it back to everything back to ieps because if you think about the iep process it's the same thing you can't write an iep an individualized program of instruction <laughs> for somebody unless you listen to what their needs actually are. There's not a one size fits all. That's called gen ed, you know? Yes. And, yes. and so, um, you know, general education is the assembly line and special ed is the custom shop, you uh, know? I, I really agree. And, you know, we've worked with some IEP experts, my oldest son, Joseph, and I was always really, touched uh, when I felt like they were taking the time to listen to me um, and when they were really looking at my son and his specific needs and so that's you know it's, it's a labor of love um, and it's it's really critical to look at each child as an individual yeah and it's required um, by law for that reason <laughs> so yeah so I mean I, I I realize there's overlap you know all of these processes and procedures that everybody's using it's interesting that no matter what outcome you're trying to achieve very often there's a similar formula to how you make it happen and there's always a needs assessment and then there's a matching of solutions and need yep and so I mean it's again you know it's common sense uh, otherwise known as scientific method but well, this is very interesting. So, what what kinds of um, what kinds of responses have you gotten from the families who are using the the Z pods? You know, so we've gotten uh, both the responses that have been highly favorable and some that have been like meh. You know, uh, but even the meh ones, what we've never gotten, what we've never heard from a single parent is, "My child does not like your bed." Okay, we may have gotten responses like your. You know, assembly instructions need some real clarity, and they're very inconvenient. Like, you know, we've gotten that before. Right, technical stuff. complaints from the, from the parents. But the, the one universal is our kids love, our, love your bed. And then we've had another set of children where it's like minimal effect, but they love it, and they use it as a chill space, right? Right. Um, and then we've had a very large number of parents. And again, I, 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 I hesitate to get any, any numbers. Uh, I'll give you what numbers I can to be as kind of precise as possible. But we've worked between 
was between 60 and 70 families. Okay. Uh, number, and that number is always increasing. And that, uh, you know, there's been a, a very high degree of, of customer satisfaction and a uh, consistent feedback from families like, wow, my kid's doing things that I've never seen the kid do before. You know, uh, we've had, for example, uh, one of my favorites was uh, Dawson, the six-year-old boy, who after a week of sleeping in our bed, first of all, the immediate result was that his sleep did jump from roughly two and three hours a night to about eight hours at the very least. Praise God. That, that by itself yeah. is worth it. <laughs> yeah, that by itself is already worth it. But then the, the kind of double validation came a week later when uh, the school teacher for Dawson penned down um, the mother and said, what are you guys doing different? Because that was unsolicited. And right. Parents, one of the things we have to be really careful about as we study this is that uh, parents who take the time and the trouble to purchase one of our beds have a bias towards you know, believing that they made a good decision. Right. And, and, and I don't want to manipulate that. I mean, you know, we want them to be happy, naturally. We want them to feel like they made a good decision. But I also, you know, I, I acknowledge that bias that they have. And so when it comes to third parties that come in and say, wow, I've seen some really, really great improvement. And we've seen that in a, a fairly large number of cases where we'll have like an OT say to the parents, this bed has been a game changer, you know, things like right. that. And in Dawson's case, for the teacher to come up without knowing that there was a change in his sleep, but just saying this kid is more alert, he's more focused. And incidentally, you know, in his particular case, there was talk among his parents about the possibility of institutionalizing him. Right. Because it was that bad. Yeah. And, and it, you know, Dawson's not a bad kid. We know that. And, you know, but, but anybody who has underslept so severely is going to have severe behavioral problems. Right. The sleep has an incredible value for the, for the brain, for the body, uh, you know, for cognition. It's just it's neurologically that. necessary, and yeah, it, and it's it's a it's part of human survival. You have to go through that, or you will it will make you literally ill. And and it, and it sounds kind of funny, like trying to sell sleep. We're you know we're not selling sleep per se. So we're selling something that we hope will cause more sleep. But you know, it's almost a little bit kind of funny to, to hear myself like, oh, no, I've come, become one of those sleep preachers. Yeah. Because you know, like, I read these books about sleep, and I'm like, these guys are all really into sleep. And then I say the same thing. It's almost like talking about water. Right. Like, oh, have you ever seen the, the rejuvenative properties of water? It's incredible. <laughs> I know. You you really have hit on a very fundamental, visceral survival level kind of need that sadly enough in our society is neglected and you know and you're you're looking at okay how do we address this fundamental survival need and these individuals who are struggling with this who are compromised and so i think that i mean i'm always excited to see new stuff and anecdotal evidence is always a sign that okay we need to look into this a little bit more deeply to see you know what makes this you know for real so i'm always happy to hear that you know with stuff like this the early adopters are like oh no this seems to be doing a thing and all of it makes sense i mean logically and intuitively you're right it, it all logically makes sense so, but it's still going to be interesting to see what kind of research data comes from it and you know as maybe some grad school student will latch on to it and want to write a paper or something you just never know and so and that's what we're, we're encouraging constantly it's like we want it to be subject to scrutiny and empirical data you know empirical study and and we also want to urge all um, companies out there that are trying to provide a solution for the autism community to find ways to get it studied you know, yeah to find third parties that are impartial to come in um, because you only stand to gain. Right. You know, you may not hear what you think you hear. You may not think, you may not hear what you want to hear, but you are going to hear what is going to be beneficial. Right. Once you know what yeah. you're working with, you can say, okay, well, this is what I know I can do, and I'm going to stay in my lane and do only that. You know, you're not going to try and be everything to everybody. And there's yes, there's exactly. a lot of value you know, we in don't that. that either. We, you know, there's this temptation to kind of overplay it, like, hey, you know, this is going to do X and Y for your kid's autism. Um, no, you know, it, we, we don't know. It's going to be different for every kid. 
and it's going to, you know, whatever your child needs is going to be a very large combination of things. We are one part of a very, very complex puzzle. Sleep, for example, right. there are physiological components to it. You know, some people can't sleep because of, like, internal, you know, parts of how they function. Right. Others, it's just a matter of really good sleep hygiene. Some have a more selective sleep hygiene, which is kind of in where we play, mm-hmm. you know, where they really need that aspect of enclosure. I don't need to be enclosed in something to feel safe. Right. You know, though I, you know, then again, I like being enclosed in my home, in my bedroom, you know, and then my wife there, those are some of the things that add to my own personal satisfaction. Right. Where I can calm down and, and initiate sleep. But some kids, they, they just thrive on. Right. And you're making me, th- the word proximity pops into my head. Where yes. it, proximity to the wall. You know, how, how close are the walls to me? As a, you know, if you're, if you feel safe within your house, you're still within a structure. But if that feels too spacious and you need to have the walls closer to your physical presence to really feel that, that enclosed, that, that enclosed feeling, then I, then that would to me say that some individuals need the walls in closer proximity to their physical beings than others. And and again, goes to everybody falls on a spectrum of some kind in every aspect of development, yeah. one way or another. And that's this is just the one that you happen to be dealing with. And yeah, and some some kids actually need. So our bed is uh, it's a tw- it fits a twin size mattress, and it's about three feet tall on the inside. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's pretty big. I can I can sit up on you know I can kneel down and I'm barely touching my head. Right. Uh, you know, and so some kids feel comfortable in that, like, they feel it. And I'm wondering, this is, now I'm kind of theorizing, that I wonder if this would fall under the proprioceptive sense. You know, where you can kind of sense that closeness to something without it being a touch sensation. Yeah, because proprioception and, is like your the sensation of your body moving through space. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, and pressure and those kinds of things. Well, I'm wondering if you're in cl- inside of the pod, how much of it is air pressure? Yes, and if okay, there's an inner air vestibular piece to it as well. Yes, yes. You know, That's some curious. Some feel really comfortable in that. Other people feel like all they need around them are the warehouse walls of a Costco. Right. You know, something very large, they're fine with that, you know. So, uh, yeah. Well, I, and it makes you think uh, of our kids on the spectrum that struggle with personal space and getting all up in, in people's faces and they don't understand that other people have a personal bubble and you need to step back a uh, few. That's a great comparison. And yeah, I'm wondering like how that. much of that is interplayed with what you're dealing with. That'd be an interesting line of inquiry to explore. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what I'm thinking of too is here in California, which I know is unique because not most states don't have anything. If any other states do, I've not heard of any other states that have it. But here in California, the Department of Education operates what they call diagnostic centers. And there's three of them. There's one up in Northern California in Fremont. There's one in the central part of the state in Fresno. And then there's another one down in L.A. for to cover, cover Southern California. And what they do is they're, fe- they're, they're funded out of the state's federal special ed dollars and state special ed dollars, um, skimmed off the top, and then all the rest goes to the public schools. And so what Diagnostic Center does is they conduct evaluations of students who their local education agencies are having a heck of a time, even going through all the normal assessment procedures trying to figure out what to do for these kids. And what they do is it's an on-site thing where they, the family will go and the, the state will put them up in a hotel and give them coupons to like soup plantations. You'll never want to eat there again by the time you're done because that's what's all they got. <laughs> And, um, and you stay there for like three or four days while your child is being evaluated by all of these ologists in this facility while you as the parent are sitting on the other side of the one-way glass watching the whole thing and you're getting interviewed and they're just like turning, you know, your whole world inside out to get a handle on what's going on with this kid. And I'm wondering if diagnostic centers wouldn't benefit from having something like this to test with those kids who have those kinds of issues. That's such a great question. Well, first of all, let me say that uh, California has a fond place in my heart. I was born and raised in Hayward. Oh, right on. Not too far from your, your Fremont Diagnostic Center. Um, and, uh, you know, In-N-Out Burger, Dolls, if you've ever been there, 
Oh, yeah. In the West. So, um, great place. But to your point, um, that's actually, I don't know if we've toyed with that specific idea. I love that a lot. One of the things we have toyed with uh, that we're working on right now, and it, it's hard to get started again. We're very new. We're three years old as a company. No, you're babies, yeah. Uh, yeah, we're a baby. You know, two years old working within the autism community. Got it. And, um, but one of the things we love to see happen is we would like to get more Airbnbs to use these, uh, just oh. in some of their kind of family. Well, and the point is that, you know, it's kind of like if you go to the mattress store and the guy says, well, try the mattress out, see how you like it. Well, you're going to sit on the end and kind of push it down with your hands and you don't know what you're doing. It's kind of like, how do I know if this is good? And then he'll tell you, you've got to lie down on the mattress. Yeah. And, and so we're trying to take it to the next level with our idea of putting these in Airbnbs because then it's like getting inside the bed. We're pretty good at assessing. We've had a number of kids come by St. Louis just to try it out, you know, get inside, and, and they love it. It's pretty automatic, and they'll close themselves in without being asked to do so. It was actually with my, my son when he did that and then lied down, and I didn't know what he was doing in there. I gave him five minutes alone just kind of waiting and then I was just like losing my patience and I opened the door and there he is on his back uh, with his hands behind his head kind of very chill very relaxed and that let me know like okay you know that was one of my earlier signals we're on to something well the point is that I could observe that for five or ten minutes or I could do an overnight right you know, with a lot more confidence it's like an opportunity to try it out. You know, that's interesting that you would say that because separate from what we do in special education, I have a whole other program that we run that's uh, devoted to sustainable living and food security. And oh, that's great. Yeah, and so um, it's all evidence-based instruction. It's a Learn and Grow educational series. But what we're looking to do is build these learning centers where people can come and stay in a sustainably built structure with gray water recapturing and composting toilets and all these things that sound scary but really aren't and try it out for a few days yeah and our ultimate goal is to at some point in time what's the point of convincing people to live this way if there's no place where they can go live this way is we also want to be able to do affordable housing that's sustainably built with all of these same technologies and um, so that if they go and they, they do a trial through Airbnb at one of our learning centers that we are looking to build in the future, that they go, oh, I can deal with this. This isn't gross. This is still really bougie. I can handle this. You know, then they then then they can they can there's a place for them to go buy into a home that has all of those things, because right now it's all the DIYers who are doing that. And not everybody wants to build their own sustainable house. Lots of people just want to go buy a house and move in and be done with it. And But there's no sustainably built homes in neighborhoods like that. And so it's the same concept of if you go and try it out first and then realize, hey, this is cool. And you see yeah. benefits from it, then you're like ready to approach it for real and incorporate it into your actual lifestyle. And so I think that that's something you are doing that's in common with what I'm doing in this other program I have. And that there's there's a lot of value of having that Airbnb experience out there for people to try things that are new. It's something that I don't think Airbnb realized when they first started that they were going to create. But it's, you know, there's now all of these places and now they have experiences. In fact, our our Learn and Grow educational series, we actually do classes through Airbnb experiences. Um, For one thing, it's a lot more affordable to do it that way for us because... um, Airbnb will ensure all of the events that we conduct for up to a million dollars per event. Oh, wow. And so that means I'm not having to go down and get a certificate of insurance every time I'm conducting a class. And the owner of the property where I'm doing my classes is like, oh, thank God, I'm not going to have to file a homeowner's claim if somebody trips and, you know, sprains an ankle while they're walking through the driveway or something. There's all of these advantages to using Airbnb to create these novel experiences that people can test out for just a few days without having to change their whole living experience. And then if they decide, oh, this was worth it, okay, it, it, it is. This is like a living test, and I think that's that's huge. I think that there's a lot of value in that. So that's exciting. I think that that's oh, a smart yeah, way to it, go. It, and if it's something, you know, it, it's something that we hope to get started as soon as possible. I know that maybe some of your listeners are thinking, oh, where can I do this? 
it's still in process. I mean, we're still looking for people to you know kind of try it out. Uh, we may got have something down in Indiana, but not certainly not in California right now. But the, the what's interesting to me about it is that on a broader topical discussion rather than just autism, it goes to show that we have shifted our purchasing behavior uh, dramatically since the advent of the internet, and Amazon has really changed. Huge, yeah. Um, it's, it's big because, you know, like we think, for example, you know, we used to think, well, what would a brick-and-mortar store look like for our operation? And pretty soon after that, we concluded there is no brick-and-mortar store for us. Right. That's not to say that brick-and-mortar is dead. I'm actually a big fan of brick-and-mortar. I love getting out there. I love being around people. Uh, you know, I love walking around. I don't want to buy everything I have on, you know, online and then cloister myself. Right. Um, but that being said, this specifically, it's just, it's a big product and it has, it, you know, you're going to consider it more if you would buy like a car. Right. Which candy, which candy bar you can select in the store. Right. Yeah, you it's know, not an impulse so, buy. Yeah. Yeah, it's not an impulse. Thank you. That's basically it. Right there. That and yeah, so because it takes that consultation, planning, and forethought and thinking, yeah, it's not really a retail oriented kind of thing where you would just have like the Z Pod store. I could see like if you had the Z Pod section of a mattress store or something, Um, but I can also see you know literature in um, developmental centers and regional center offices, you know, and and things like where it would be something that. like you said, you're not doing a medical model, so it's not necessarily something that would be prescribed. But, yeah. um, you know, yeah, like I mean, an assistive yeah, technology uh, evaluation, when you have kids who are in a special ed who you're trying to find out what technologies will give them access to education, well, what yeah, if the issue was sleep, could that be part of an assistive technology evaluation? And if that's the that case... Said, I'm, I'm really excited you brought that one up because I was, I was just about to bring it up that assistive technology programs, if you have an assistive technology program nearby, you like ask them about us. And the reason why is because we're actually currently, I mean literally currently, uh, reaching out to all of them because uh, we didn't really even know they existed. I was, you know, not sophisticated enough within the special needs community to really understand what these things were. Right. But, uh, you know, they, it's a program that's been around since the 80s. Mm-hmm. Every state has one. And uh, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, last year, um, the director for the assistive technology program for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts reached out to us. And these guys, they set the standard. You know, they're actually like the best in the United States. And this guy, the director, really wonderful gentleman, uh, Tom Mercier, reached out to me. I think he's retired now, but Tom, you know, said, I'm getting like, you know, some parents who really know uh, trying to get me to look at this i just want to take a look and they're like sure you know we, we set them up with one of our beds and they tried it up with the family and it was really amazing success for this family and to the point where tom and his team approved uh for their field operators to be able to recommend the bed well uh, and see in this now, yeah yeah go ahead oh i was gonna say yeah, what... i guess we'll just end with saying that you know now we're reaching out to every single one of them just to educate them and, and they are a great place where they do keep these products in stock and then allow people for them to try them out and find out if it's suitable. Right. Well, and you're making me think of so many things. So when you're talking about an assistive technology evaluation, trial and error is the only way to know if the tech is going to meet the individual's needs. So it doesn't matter how much peer-reviewed research you have about, you know, this group of, of, of subjects in a study how does that relate to Bob over here who needs this particular problem solved? Is it going to work for Bob? You know, and so, so you have, you know, you, you end up with a study where, you know, N equals one, you've only got one subject in when you're doing an evaluation and you're doing individualized planning. And whether you're talking about special education or developmental services, whether it's through a, a state DDS or they outsource it to regional centers, it varies from state to state. Or you're talking about the Department of Rehabilitation, which is to employment what special ed is to education. And you're talking about 18 and older now and adults with disabilities. And if sleep deprivation is an issue that prevents them from holding down a job, 
Is this an accommodation the Department of Rehab might have to buy somebody to keep them employable? And and so there's all and it's it's all individualized planning. Everybody gets an individualized plan of something, some kind. So if it's regional center, it's an individualized program plan, an IPP. If it's special ed, it's an individualized educational program, IEP. If it's Department of Rehab, it's an individualized plan for employment, IPE. But they all start with that I. And it's always coming down to the assessment of that individual person of what are your unique needs and how can we meet them. And when you're doing AT evaluations, again, it's trial and error of let's try this tech with you and see if you benefit from it. Then really, bottom line, that's the only thing that works in an AT eval and that's just as scientifically valid as a million and one research studies about a bunch of random people that doesn't have anything to do with the one person you're trying to serve. So yeah. I think that if you connect with all of these publicly funded agencies that have to do individualized programming, then your support data is going to come from the instance by instance individual assessments of, you know, how many of these individuals benefited from this tech and what was it about them that made it useful for them what do they share in common in terms of needs and what do they share in common in terms of effects and then you get your aggregate data from that but you've got to have enough individuals serve that way but i think that might be an interesting way to go because you don't already have to have the published research to necessarily back you up if you've got i mean where you're at right now is sufficient and the fact that you've already got a regional center here in california funding this for someone and you've got these ATAC assessors from, from, you know, around the country taking a serious hard look at this from a you know, developmental standpoint. I think that's huge. And that's very compelling. Well, we feel very, very fortunate. And the, and the thing I, I just, you know, a couple points to hit. Number one, uh, our parents are the secret sauce. Yep. They work so hard. Yep. And they make it happen. Like, where, where we've had success is really primarily because the parents have pushed for this. They see what we're doing. They see the value. They have to do the sales, you know, to these institutions. And, the, and they have to enforce the laws with these institutions. Yes. I mean, all of these... Enforce the law. All, all yeah. of these... The parents are the enforcement arm of all of these civil rights laws that protect individuals with disabilities. It's usually the family that has to go to bat for an individual who can't go to bat for themselves. And yeah. um, and so you've, you've got the way the laws are written is that, um, you know, and this is democracy of the people for the people by the people. So the way the laws are written is the people are supposed to be able to, act, you know, advocate for themselves using these systems. Now, how effective that is, is a whole nother conversation. But the way the system is created, it's, it's on, the burden is on the family. And to, to drive the process and these, these, Programs exist for their benefit, but they're supposed to go seek them out and avail themselves of these programs and say, here are their needs that need to be met. What do you got? And then when they come to come with a unique issue that the system doesn't already have a, you know, a canned solution for, and they, they're required to innovate, at, they're not, these institutions are not built for innovation. They're built for bureaucracy. And so it, the, the burden then falls on the parents' shoulders to go, well, now, wait a minute. You know, you're here to serve us. You know, that's we pay taxes and we've already paid for this stuff. So what are you going to do with the money you've already been given? You know, and um, yeah. and so it's, you know, it's it, it really is. It does fall on the shoulders of the parents and not just because they're the secret sauce. It's because they have to be. You know, yeah, that's no, how the system's set up. Because, you know, like no one's going as much as there, I know that there are people out there, my, my sons, you know, people who teach them and mentor them and stuff like that. Love them, they care for them. Right. But no, none of them, none of them love them like I love them. Right. You know, and, and so you have to, you have to find be that advocate. Uh, but you, know, you bring up a, another interesting point earlier that just really jumped out to me. That is that on the one hand, you're, you're totally right that, you know, what is right for one individual may not be for another. And yet we still have a big need for clinical trials, yep. you know, for these broader statements so that we can at least know what could predictably work. In other words, those individual assessments, if you have to start from scratch every single time because you don't have any big picture data, right? then it's very hard for you to be able to say, okay, this is what's going to work for, or we should even try this. Because every single time that you, you revisit an, you visit an individual, you have to start from scratch. Right. So big picture, cl you know, clinical data allows us to be able to make some predictions. Right. Like, you know what? This 
this study says that 80%, 70%, 90% of people are going to, with this condition, are going to respond positively to this. Exactly. And it so helps you narrow down the field of what to try. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, on the individual level, if, you know, for this case of your child, it turns out that your child gets a full 10 hours of sleep, you know, which is probably what they should be getting at the age of anywhere from, you know, 5 to know 18 or whatever the number is right mm-hmm. 10 hours of sleep and they get that because they bounce the ball 10 times before they go to bed and they're good guess what if that works for your kid rock on right I love that. and i love the individualized you know approach so there, there really is value in both sides of that structure. absolutely and then on the other side you know one thing that i wanted to add is that you know we have these individual customers our, our goal right now as a startup is how do we early on establish a pattern of gathering data, you know, and data that that can tell us more about each of these individuals and then the aggregate, so that we know with greater certainty what is what is going on, what is helping, what is not helping, you know, and and I think that it's very important. You know, I would really urge all startups, anybody in this space, do clinical trials. Yeah. Expose, expose yourself to that, and also everything you can to get constant customer feedback because they're always going to tell you ways that you can improve. Some right. are going to be more shy about it than others, but you can have plenty who are just like, I'm going to tell you my mind. I don't like this part of your product, or I do like this, and you will improve. I, some right. of our best improvements can, because, you know, I got told by a very frank parent, uh, I don't like this. Right. And I was really grateful because then we took those things immediately and said, we have some changes to make. Well, and yeah, you're, not, not yeah, I was going to say, you're making me think of how it could be done because how you could get that data, because if you do the individual assessments where you're matching product to unique individual need, and now you've got 50 individuals who have this in their IEP or their IPP or their I whatever, yeah. all of those documents are goal driven. So whenever you do any kind of individualized planning, first you have to figure out what it is you're trying to make happen. And then you write a measurable annual goal to that need. So if the goal is, is we want Bobby to sleep at least eight hours a night for a full month straight, then that's your annual goal. That by the end of this year, Bobby's going to be able to sleep the, you know, at least eight hours a night uh, for a month straight. And um, the progress being made towards that goal is going to automatically generate data if the goal has been legitimately written, if it really has been written in a measurable manner. And so you've got all of these individuals with all of these goals that speak to sleep. And this is the solution that they're attempting to meet that goal. The data collection is naturally going to speak to the degree to which the device is helping or not. And then when you get enough people who have these devices as part of their individualized plans and you've got this progress towards goal data being collected in terms of how efficacious it is then you can take all of these multiple individualized reports and then turn it into a report of aggregate data where you say okay well out of the 50 people where we had on these individualized plans uh 25 of them had this issue and responded this way versus this versus you know what i'm saying so you're, you're taking the individualized data and piling it all together to create a body of aggregate data that can then be analyzed. And so you're, you're taking advantage of both sides of that coin to get valid data. And, and it's performance-based. It's not hypothetical. So that's, now, you, you, that's you what I was thinking. That really, uh, lets, you know, and I, I love, and that is, I, I want to emphasize to you, on, in terms of the IEP and what... You know, the folks in the IEP world, what I would love for them to know is that, uh, you know, I, I, I'm going to speak a little bit out of turn because I'm not the IEP expert. Right. Okay? Um, but the, the thing that I hope that a lot of IEPs take away from this is that of all of the aspects of a child's life that you were talking about, this is a pretty critical one. I'm not yep. going to say it's the most important because I think that each of us in our specialties, we're all, you know, Buying for attention. We're all trying to, well, we're the most important because we're sleeping. That's one third of your life. We're right. the most important because we're broccoli. And if you don't eat broccoli, right. you're probably going to get cancer. All of us are competing, but I am here to say that sleep is a critical component of your IEP. Yeah. And if, if it's going great, that's wonderful, but it should be needed 
visit it. And that, that, that's a hard demand on the IT professional in the sense that they at least have to have some fundamental understanding both of its benefits and of maybe some kind of surface recommendations that they can make at least getting out the gate to kind of let's let's take care of some of the things that could be the problem. Let's find out, for example, you know, your child, is, is it dark enough when they're sleeping? Is it too noisy? Are you watching television, you know, until 11 o'clock at night with your child? Are right. Are you exposed to screens? Are they, you know, so, so these types of questions help us to eliminate as factors possible causes right. to what is driving the loss of sleep. And you need to have at least a fundamental, you know, like a basic understanding of what could be getting in the way of sleep. Now, you know, of course, at that point, you always want to have a good kind of sleep go-to. Somebody that you know who, okay, you know what, I'm out of it, I'm out of my debt, I recommend talk to this institution, like a sleep center or something right. like that. And even then, I'll, I'll tell you that I get a lot, a lot of phone calls from parents who said that the sleep center is like giving up. Yeah. They, they, they just don't know what to do with this kid because this kid defies their kind of expectations for what should be helping the child get better sleep. Well, and I would think yeah. the sleep centers would want to test your product as well to see, if, especially when they're running yeah. into a situation like that, that that should be part of the testing milieu. Yeah. Well, and this is all the more reason for you know, in-depth clinical trials to be able to put in front of them because they will correctly come to us and say, we expect you to have data. Right. You know, and, and I expect that from them. I, I think that that is a good. You know, now, if they're so inflexible as to not be open at all, especially when already have you know, pretty heavy anecdotal evidence right. that you know that this is something that should be taken seriously, the aspect that or the concept of enclosure, you know, that I think is, is kind of negative. But, but I do expect them to have a, an academic interest in what it is we're doing. I, I would think they'd be wanting helping you do the studies that they would want to get in on oh, it and yeah. get published. I mean Oh yeah. Uh, and, and the reality though behind studies that I think we should all you know, bear in mind is that no matter what you do going to be spending money. Right. And, and so, you know, for example, investors and startups, they don't actually like to spend money on studies. If you go to investors and say, I want to raise capital and uh, this amount of capital, you know, $200,000 or whatever it is, is going to go towards a clinical trial. Right. They'll say, come back to us once you've done a clinical trial. Uh, yeah. It's the same way with uh, nonprofits. Yeah. It's like, we'll give you a grant if you can show what you've done with the p grants you've gotten in the past. I'm like, yeah, well, exactly. now somebody's got to be the first one here. <laughs> yeah, and so you have to look for people who are very invested, not just you know in the financial returns that you may be able to provide, but the outcome that you know that they actually love the the story that you have. They right. love what you're trying to create, and so that that's where you know I agree with you that I, I would love to have more sleep centers try you know our beds to right it's like how, how are they effective in what areas yeah 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 well, what about the scent what about you know is the smell of the space you know affecting anything what about the temperature and so there are so many variables we do have the kind of virtue of being able to isolate those variables and create some constants that are not really um, as easily achieved in normal experimentation i actually had a really good conversation with uh, Temple Grandin mm. about this, where, and then the thing that she said that just blew my mind, and I would not have been the one to think of this, I, she's very... Oh, her brain is just something else, yeah. Uh, it, it's really amazing, and she, the thing that she told me, and I was told her, you know, okay, we're, we're putting together some clinical she says, every kid who sleeps in your bed, they have to be using the same sheets, the same mattress, and then she laid it out, like, this is what it's got to look like, and I was just like, oh my gosh, you know, and I immediately run to my pencil, and I'm just writing stuff down, and just thinking, like, thank you, thank you, she, she's so, uh, yeah, the, the trial is, it's not comparable if everybody's not experiencing under the exact same conditions. You can't compare one person's experience to another unless it's all identical. Yeah, that's the thing about clinical trials. And it was really refreshing, you know, to, to get her perspective on that. It's very, I, I feel like she's very generous with her time. She is. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the things that 
I like about events is that we can isolate a lot of factors. Like, look at room. Okay, so this is one of the things we're trying to get people to think about as we look at this as a solution is that imagine every autistic child in the United States and adult. Now imagine all of their different living situations. Some of them have big rooms, small rooms. Most of them probably live in small rooms, you know, because we're, we're not all wealthy. Right. You know, and, and but, you know, even the room, the shape of the room, the lighting of the room, the proximity to the city, you know, some sleep right next to the train tracks. Right. You know, and so to be able to isolate their kind of like the, the ideal is really hard to do. And I like the idea that we're working towards that, you know, that we, we're kind of, let's give a consistent and predictable environment in which to control for other variables. And then we can start really isolating different variables in, in a quantifiable way that may be causing some of the more serious sleep issues that we're seeing. Totally makes sense. Totally yeah. makes sense. Well, so we're, we're coming up now on, it looks like almost uh, 50 minutes. We've been doing it. I don't know why that. Every minute's been fun. I, it's, okay. I know this has all been like enthralling. So, um, but I know that not everybody's going to want to listen for like hours and hours. So I, I think the big question that people are going to have after listening to all of this and going, well, that sounds really cool. How much does it cost? So what is the price point that, that parents, if they're interested in looking into this, what are they looking at, you know, in terms of cost? I mean, even if a parent were to lay out money for this, there's a possibility it could be reimbursed by any of these agencies that have an obligation to their kids. So, yeah. but it's going to require, you know, proof of purchase and all that kind of stuff. I mean, what kind of price tag? Okay, so we, we've got the bed, as I said, uh, covered in states like Massachusetts, Missouri, Minnesota, Ohio, California, and Kansas. And we're going to keep on working on that. Good. Um, and, you know, and, and we're happy to kind of advise parents on how we think that's going to be best be accomplished. The beds uh, will cost, they, they come out in June, the new version, because we sold out all of, of all of our China inventory. Wow. Uh, we have a new Made in USA version that has upgrades all based on what we heard from parents. That's so cool. Um, so the new one will cost uh, $5,000 retail. Uh, that being said, the first 288 that we're going to be selling are going to be $2,800 each, and that's shipping included on those 288. Okay. So, yeah, so we're, we're going to cover the shipping on that. The reason why is we want to get these out. We want to get people experience with them. And uh, I was going to say that, you know, we do have financing and such, but the, the fact of the matter is that if you are invested in trying this for your child, we are invested finding a solution. We, we've been very fortunate to get some really great guidance on how to get these things started. We really want to share that with people. Uh, our, our website is uh, zpodsforsleep.com. Right on. And, uh, yeah, feel free to reach out to us because we are, are so invested in these kids and um, just want to help in any way that we can. Well, that's really exciting. And, and all that being said, I mean, for me as, a, as an advocate, someone who goes in and helps families advocate for these kinds of solutions for their children, you know, this is something that we regularly do. It's like, this is cost prohibitive for this family. It's not like we're asking for a $2.99 app. You know, this is, this is an outlay of cash that is a necessary accommodation for this particular individual, then, you know... I know that I can go, these are the kinds of things that I go to agencies for and say, look, you know, if it was something easy and out of pocket that this family could do, but this is, this is an expenditure and this is what these public resources are for. I'm really excited. I'm going to be looking on your website to see what you've already got up there in that regard of how parents can go advocate for themselves to get these things. But I would also want our listeners to know that um, if you already have a, an advocate or an attorney that you're working with, and this is something you think that might be appropriate, you would want to involve that person in the conversation as well, because they may know, you know, how the system works a little bit better in terms of rules and regulations to help you navigate those sharky waters and overcome whatever objections people might have, because the agencies don't want to spend that kind of money either. And they're going to come back and say, oh, you know, you just want us to fly your kid to Hawaii and swim with the dolphins. And, you know, it's like, look, dolphin therapy might be effective, but does it, does my kid need it to learn how to read? No. And so, you know, there's, you know, you know, I'm, I'm not, I, you know, I'm not the person who's going to go there and try and pitch some, you know, crazy, ridiculously expensive solution just because, 
You know, we're, we're not trying to help people milk the system for things that are not what the system was designed for. But in an instance like this, where, like you were talking about the one child who was on the verge of institutionalization. Well, now you're talking about least, yeah, least restrictive environment. That in all of these programs, the, the, the commitment is to try and keep people in as non-segregated of a setting as possible and to keep them as integrated with the rest of society as much as you can. And, you know, and also when you're looking at it from a budgetary standpoint, which costs less, a one-time expenditure of five grand or 8,500 a month for a residential treatment facility and to accomplish the same outcome. And so for, for those kids who are in that unique boat, I think that this is a this serious conversation to be had because how many residential placements could be prevented by making the home environment more suitable? When you're talking about, it's really about ecological control. And all, if, if for the, in the absence of ecological control, you're going to pack this kid off someplace and separate them from their support system and their family, you know, that's never the best idea. And that's always the last resort. So if there's another layer of intervention that can come before that, that can prevent it, that's always important for everybody in these, in these lines of work to understand and know about, that this could be something that the agencies understand this is far less expensive than what the alternative is for some of these individuals. And it certainly is far more compliant and less segregationist. And so for everybody involved, it's a better solution if that's the case. And so I think that this is something that other advocates and attorneys need to be paying attention to as well, that this is something they could potentially be asking for if it suits the need. And if so, only an individualized assessment is going to answer that question. And, and, and I would be happy to talk with any of those attorneys, you know, formulating strategy and such. It's, uh, it's kind of our joy to be able to help. It's funny, I, I'll leave you with one last story. I know we've talked a long time. <laughs> this one, just uh, about two, two months ago, I was helping a mother and I was in a hearing. Uh, I was not allowed to speak, um, and, and it just they were asking about kind of like they're looking for any sort of other low cost, you know, a solution. And this mom had tried right. everything, and finally the, the the kind of opposing counsel or whatever you want to call them, you know, was saying, well, well, you know, this is it's just changing their environment. That's all they're doing. Why not change the room? Like you could, you know, the room doesn't need to be that big or something like that. And I was just thunderstruck yeah by what i was hearing i was like you were literally advocating that this woman move rather than just pay for the cost of the bed right <laughs> oh yeah it's like how can they all the things i see the stories i could tell trust me i mean that's like the tip of the iceberg and 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 it, it always comes back down to we don't want it it's an uh, not out of my budget mentality yes, yes. it's a not out of my budget mentality very short-sighted. Very short-sighted. I mean, these are the same kinds of people who would rather criminalize a behavior and stick a kid in juvenile hall than pay for a, a BCBA to come in and provide a behavior program. And it's like, well, you know, even though it's going to cost a taxpaying public 10 times as much with, like, far more abysmal results to put them in the juvenile justice system, at least that's not coming out of my budget. And it's like, what did... You're going to go home and pay taxes for that? Do you not understand that's coming out of your personal budget? I mean... It's just the lack of, of wisdom. And so it's like, how did you get this job? You know, you and I are encountering some similar issues, just coming at it from a different perspective. And it, this has been a very enlightening conversation. This has given me a lot of things to think about. I'm going to have an ADHD spinoff in a minute and, you know, a million and one ideas are going to pop in my head. But, um, well, thank you very much for, for doing this with me today. I think we've covered a lot of ground and this is a lot of information for people to digest. I will very definitely make sure that I've got links to all of your stuff. You know, it's going to be something I'm going to be sharing with the other professionals that I work with as well, so that they are aware that this is even an option. And as we encounter these kinds of things in the field, we, we now know we have got this potential tool in our toolbox that we can at least attempt to see if it's going to work. I mean, it's a, again, trial and error when you're talking no, about technology. Yeah, we, you never know, but when it does, it really rocks. I mean, seeing the changes that we've seen, like, talking about four hours of sleep a night, all of a sudden, ten hours of sleep. Oh, yeah, any kind of, any kind of change you can make with respect to sleep problems is always usually pretty noticeable pretty quickly. And so, you know, that part of it, that's the proven science, is that improving sleep quality improves a whole bunch of other stuff. So, really, it comes down to, you know, where does your product fit into improving sleep quality? Not, you know, so you don't have to prove the sleep quality issue. It's just, you. it's about, you know, showing how your product fits in with it. 
So I, I'm excited to see this. And if you get um, some Airbnbs and stuff like that, that are willing to take these on, yeah, share us the links for those guys too, because we'll put that out there for, for people to go and check it out and try it and see what they think. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank so you. Much. This has been very, more, more than anything, it's been fun. Well, thank you. It has been. It has been. Well, much appreciated. Thank you. You're so welcome. Thank you for listening to the podcast version of Interview of George Bailey, President of Z-Pods. KPS for Parents reminds its listeners that knowledge powers solutions for parents and all eligible children, regardless of disability, are entitled to a free and appropriate public education. If you are a parent, education professional, or concerned taxpayer and have questions or comments about special education-related matters, please email us at info at kpsforparents.org or post a comment to our blog. That's info at K as in knowledge, P as in powers, S as in solutions, the number four parents, P-A-R-E-N-T-S dot O-R-G. We hope you found our information useful and look forward to bringing more useful information to you. Subscribe to our feed to make sure that you receive the latest information from Making Special Education Actually Work, an online publication of KPS for Parents. Find us online at kpsforparents.org. KPS for Parents is a nonprofit lay advocacy organization. The information provided by KPS for Parents in making special education actually work is based on the professional experiences and opinions of KPS for Parents lay advocates and should not be construed as formal legal advice. If you require formal legal advice, please seek the counsel of a qualified attorney. All the content here is copyrighted by KPS for Parents, which reserves all rights.